EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by SQM. Pablo Altamiras, SVP at SQM, spoke to Politico Studio about sustainable lithium, electromobility, and soaring demand. Read the interview on Politico. The first major initiative of AUKUS will be to deliver a nuclear-powered submarine fleet for Australia. We intend to build these submarines in Adelaide, Australia, in close cooperation with the United Kingdom and the United States. Welcome to a bumper edition of Politico's EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, coming to you from Berlin this week. And you just heard the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, setting off a geopolitical earthquake as he announced his country was ditching a multi-billion dollar submarine deal with France and replacing it with a broader security and technology pact with the US and the UK, known as AUKUS. The decision to blow France out of the water in the Pacific sparked outrage in Paris and rippled across Europe with some EU leaders raising new questions about the future of the transatlantic alliance and accusing US President Joe Biden of disloyalty. We'll dive into all of that with our reporters based in Sydney, Paris and Brussels later in the podcast. But first, we're here in Berlin for the big one. Sunday's German general election, which will bring the curtain down on the Angela Merkel era. A historic moment for Germany and for Europe. Over the past 16 years, Merkel has, of course, emerged as the continent's pre-eminent leader, steering her country and the EU through multiple crises. Up until recently, the euro has been a strong currency, a reflection of the Europe's economic The largest group of migrants might. making the perilous journey. Europe's biggest economy is poised to re-enter lockdown. German they Chancellor put together a massive rescue package to protect the euro. But nearly three years ago, in a time before face masks, lockdowns and social distancing, Merkel announced that she was stepping down as the head of her CDU party. Auf dem nächsten Bundesparteitag der CDU im Dezember in Hamburg werde ich nicht wieder für das Amt der Vorsitzenden der CDU Deutschlands kandidieren. And she said she wouldn't run again for the chancellorship. Diese vierte Amtszeit ist meine letzte als Bundeskanzlerin der Bundesrepublik Deutschland. That announcement fired the starting gun on the race to replace her, which reaches its climax on Sunday. And it's a cliffhanger. It's too close to call whether Finance Minister Olaf Scholz of the Social Democrats or Armin Laschet of Merkel's own party will emerge as the leader of the EU's most populous country and economic heavyweight. In this special edition of EU Confidential, we'll tell you the story of how this unusually unpredictable campaign has unfolded. We'll try to break it down into about half a dozen key moments that defined the election, with political reporters who've been following every twist and turn. To guide us through this election journey, let's say hi to Matt Karnichnik. Good evening. And to a new voice on the podcast, our reporter Emily Schulteis. Hi, Emily. Hi, good to be here. Also with us, our in-house polling expert, Cornelius Hirsch. Hi, Cornelius. Hi, Andrew. Great to be here. One of the things I think, looking back, is that one of the most significant moments didn't appear that significant at the time. In fact, didn't really get a lot of publicity. 
And we're talking about something that happened back in August 2020, in the dog days of summer when, you know, a lot of people are not paying attention to the news, a lot of journalists are on holiday, and the Social Democrats, the centre-left party here, announced kind of out of the blue that they've picked a chancellor candidate, and that person is Finance Minister Olaf Scholz. We have the party of the SPD today with Olaf Scholz as Bundeskanzler candidate in the Wahl-Auseinandersetzung this year. And I have to say, it certainly didn't make a big impact on me. And at that time, I think one of the reasons it didn't make much impact is because the opinion polls at that time didn't give the SPD much of a chance. Maybe, Cornelius, can you just remind us of where the SPD were in the polls when Olaf Scholz was announced as Chancellor candidate? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So back in August of 2020, the Christian Democrats of Angela Merkel, they were still riding high in the polls, around 37%. The Greens were at 18% in second place, and the Social Democrats were at that time only around 15 to 16% in the polls. And then after the announcement of uh, Olaf Scholz, that also only improved slightly to around 17%. So almost no attention bounce for them. Hmm. And Matt, give us the potted summary of Olaf Scholz and why you think this didn't make more of an impact when he was announced as a candidate. Well, I think the main thing was that they were just so far behind in the polls as a party and they'd gone through all of this internal fighting over the previous couple of years. Scholz himself had lost his bid to become chairman of the party and their previous Chancellor candidate Martin Schulz, who was the leader of the European Parliament, of course, really crashed and burned. So the party was in disarray. And I don't think that anybody thought they had a serious chance to come back and certainly win the chancellery. Right. And Emily, do you have any memory of that moment? Do you remember anything about the kind of coverage it got in the press? To be honest, not really, which I think says everything that needs to be said. You know, I remember a few headlines, but in terms of the high profile kinds of announcements we got from the other parties earlier this year, nothing like that. I do think there was a bit of strategy behind it, though, because in the previous cycle in the 2017 election, they waited until very late in the game to choose their candidate. And, you know, with Martin Schultz, and, and this time I think they decided to do the opposite, thinking that they might have a better chance if they were to go early. So they really went, I think, earlier than they'd ever gone with this decision and thought that if they established him early on as the candidate, there wouldn't be all of these debates over the next year about who was going to get the nod. So, you know, it looks like that's worked out in the end for them. Right. And I think maybe there was a surprise in that this leadership team, which was seen as more left wing, had given the nod to Schultz had just said, yep, he's our guy, uh, even though Schultz seen as much more of a moderate, much more of a centrist. They had defeated him to win the party leadership, but they basically hand him the nomination. And as Matt says, in doing that, they kind of establish kind of... Uh, early mover advantage. Yeah, the early mover advantage, exactly. And if you look at what the CDU went through, the CDU-CSU, in the ensuing months, you have to say that it was a really smart decision because their main competitors on the, the center-right, you know, they, they couldn't stop fighting. And that really, I think, diverted attention away from the bigger picture. 
And that brings us to the second key moment, I would say, in this campaign. Really, if you looked at the opinion polls at that time, this race was the Christian Democrats to lose. They were in clear first place. What they had to do were kind of navigate two things. First of all, they had to choose a new leader of the Christian Democrats, previously Angela Merkel's party. Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer had taken over. That hadn't really worked. Their leadership process was delayed by the coronavirus, by the pandemic, by lockdown. So at the beginning of this year, the CDU has to choose a leader. And it is assumed generally that the CDU candidate will be the candidate for chancellor for the combined Conservative bloc, the CDU and its sister party, the Christian Social Union, the Bavarian Party. So into the ring come three candidates. Do you remember who the three uh, candidates for the leadership of the CDU were, Matt? Uh, yes, I do. They were Armin Laschet, Friedrich Merz and Norbert Röttgen. Yeah, some people even predicted Norbert Röttgen would win. I don't uh, think that. anybody would be <laughs> so naive to think that he could have won. My personal expectation is that Röttgen will win. Really? I'm, this is a dark horse candidate. Okay. I'm going out on a limb here. Can I just say to our yeah. listeners? Anyway, I remember that we were uh, live blogging, as we do at uh, any possible occasion, the CDU conference, which was largely a kind of virtual conference to pick the party leader. And one of the things that was striking by that was quite dramatic in contrast to how um, the SPD had taken care of things. They kind of turned this in almost a reality TV show with real-time voting, and it was quite a kind of nerve-wracking moment. 992 they started with three candidates, they got down to two. And Armin Laschet gave a speech which I think, you know, may have kind of won it for him. Quite an emotional speech. What do you remember about that, Matt? Well, I remember that, you know, I was thinking he, he's a very good actor because the Armin Laschet that we saw in that speech was certainly not the boring politician that people had uh, come to know. And he told this story about how his father had been a coal miner and that he'd carried this coin with him down into the mines every day for good luck and all this kind of thing. Hat mein Vater mir seine Erkennungsmarke als Glücksbringer mitgegeben. And it was, you know, it was a pretty effective shtick at the end of the day. And I think he came across as very affable and the kind of guy, you know, that a lot of Germans could vote for. And I think that's what the party was looking for, somebody who was going to be electable because that's what it's about at the end of the day. And in comparison to his competitors, I think at that moment, he clearly looked to be like the safest choice. Right. He certainly had the common touch. He was able to display it there and clinched the leadership of his party that puts him in pole position then to become the joint candidate of the CDU and the CSU and therefore to become at that point chancellor. That was the assumption, Cornelius. Can you give us a sense of where the polls were at that point when Armin Laschet becomes leader of the CDU? Yeah, so back in January of 2021, the polls did not really show a big shift after he became the party leader, but the CDU, together with the CSU, they were still riding high in the polls, around 36%. So Laschet is in position 
And now it's the moment for both the CDU-CSU and the Green Party to pick their candidates for Chancellor. And what's striking here is that you could hardly have a greater contrast between how they go about it. Emily, you follow the Greens closely for us. Talk us through how the Greens chose their candidate for Chancellor and who they chose. Well, so in contrast, as you say, to the CDU-CSU, the Greens went through this process privately among the two leaders themselves. Annalena Baerbock is the candidate that the party eventually went with. Robert Habeck is the other co-leader of the party, charismatic, well-known as well. It was thought to be a, a difficult decision between the two of them, but it was resolved privately. And, and this is all happening you know, simultaneously, right? So as you're reading these headlines in the media coming out of closed-door meetings from the CDU, you're seeing this sort of near flawless rollout of Annalena Baerbock. Robert Habeck comes on stage and introduces her. And in diesem Wahlkampf wird uns die erste grüne Kanzlerkandidatin führen, Annalena Baerbock. Liebe Annalena, bitte, die Bühne gehört dir. Very gracious. Everything goes off without a hitch. And meanwhile, the CDU is still sitting behind the scenes and having these very messy discussions. Right. And the CDU CSU has had a tough few months. First of all, there have been a series of scandals partly linking MPs with basically taking cuts from deals to secure face masks, other protective uh, equipment related to the pandemic, basically corruption scandals. So the party is taking a bit of a hit there. And then this real duel emerges between Armin Laschet and Bavarian Premier Marcus Söder, the leader of the Christian Social Union. Matt, give us a kind of potted portrait of Söder and of that contest, what was really at stake there. Well, Söder is much more popular than Armin Laschet in the general population. And I think there was this sense within the centre-right there as the months ticked by that Laschet is fine as leader of the CDU, but if they really want to win the election, they would have a better chance with Serta, who's this very kind of gregarious figure, uh, the kind of guy most people would like to go and drink a beer with. Although he seems to prefer Diet Coke, right? He's also quite a good actor. Uh, he Marcus is a Suda. very good actor, yeah. I think he mixes the Diet Coke with his beer or something yeah. disgusting like that. But <laughs> Sounds great. In any case, he was definitely the person that the polls showed would have a better chance of winning the election. So we saw this kind of battle between Laschet and Söder about who was going to be the chancellor candidate. And though the CSU has had its man as the chancellor candidate in the past on a few occasions, they've never won. So, And they're much smaller. So there was this sense that given the CDU's relative size, I think it's five times as big as the CSU, they had the sort of right of first refusal on the candidacy. Right. And they pushed that through. And in contrast to the green process that Emily mentioned, this is all very dramatic. I remember there's a, I think you and I were in contact very late at night, one night when Marcus Zuder comes to Berlin for talks with the CDU grandees, I think possibly expecting that they're going to say, okay, you're our guy, and instead gets a very different message. And all of this is getting played out in public. And I think, you know, obviously does not do the whole conservative camp a lot of good. And we have some uh, breaking news just coming in. Germany's conservative bloc has agreed on Armin Laschet 
to be its candidate for uh, chancellor in the country's upcoming elections this fall. His rival, Markus Söder, conceded the race just moments ago. So let's go straight to our chief... So Cornelius, bring us up to speed there. So we're, this is all happening in April. This is the kind of month where both the uh, Conservative camp and the Greens choose their candidates for chancellor. Fill us in on the polls, if you can remember what they were saying about the uh, relative popularity of Laschet and Söder, and what happens in the polls once they've both picked their chancellor candidates? Yeah, so in, in early spring, it was already not going that well for the CDU and CSU, right? As you mentioned, there were all those scandals around those mask contracts and also the pandemic seemed more under control, but then the whole vaccine rollout didn't go as planned and uh, voters already kind of lost confidence with the government. And so the CDU dropped from around 36 to 27% already in our poll of polls over the course of spring. And then in April, both the Greens and the CDU, CSU, picked their candidate for chancellor. And what we see normally when, when parties pick and present their candidate, then they usually tend to benefit from such a attention bounce for their candidate and also from a increased media attention on their topics. And we normally see a bounce in the polls. But this did really uh, not happen for the CDU-CSU in contrast to the Greens which actually did get this boost after Annalena Baerbock was so smoothly presented without any party infighting, it seemed, as the candidate for chancellor. But after Laschet was picked as their candidate for chancellor, the uh, CDU, CSU actually dropped even further, a few percentage points. And at that point, it was for the very first time that the Greens overtook the CDU, CSU in our poll of polls and went ahead for a short period of time. Right. I mean, this is that the Greens had a real honeymoon with Annalena Baerbock as the candidate and soared into first place. You know, Annalena Baerbock is on magazine covers. She kind of looks like the future. <laughs> but Emily, then things don't go so well for the Greens. Fill us in on what happened there. This moment of kind of overtaking the CDU in the polls was this culmination of several years of effort under Baerbock and under Habeck. The party had sort of slowly begun winning more in state elections and European elections. And so, you know, that moment of her being introduced on stage, her showing up on these these glossy magazine covers, in retrospect, that was the peak, that was the high point. And you know, everything seems inevitable when you look back on something, but you know, you talk to people in the party who say even at the time, we kind of felt this is a little bit overhyped and we wonder where it comes from here. And the honeymoon period didn't last very long. You started to see um, what began as some kind of smaller news stories. First, that there was you know, supplementary income from the party that she hadn't properly reported. Saw a couple of headlines about that, you know, small blip on the radar. And then there's the news that she maybe had done some things to sort of pad her official CV, some inconsistencies in the way that that was written. And then we came to this moment at the end of June where there were credible plagiarism allegations um, against her. There's evidence presented that she had had lifted passages of this brand new campaign book she just published. And she's a candidate who had many things going for her, but deep government experience was never one of them. And I think all these things kind of combined this sort of steady drumbeat of smaller and then increasingly larger negative headlines, you know, really underscored that fact that this was her first rodeo. Right. This is it. That the, As you say, she had been part of this process of moving the Greens to being a more, if you like, centrist party or kind of portraying itself very much in the mainstream. But then the scrutiny that kind of comes with that and was new to her, new to them. And so we start to see them falling in the polls. 
So in a sense, again, the advantage is back with the party that really most people expected would retain the chancellery, the CDU, CSU. Cornelius, give us a kind of snapshot of how the polls are going after Baerbock starts to fall. After Annalena Baerbock was presented as the candidate, they reached around 25% as the peak in our poll of polls. Yeah, but then pretty soon a downward trend started, which it never actually really came to a halt until today. And so while most other parties did not really benefit from this downward trend of the Greens, it was back favoring the CDUCs, which picked up again and were clearly in the lead in our polls tracker. Mm. And in terms of we're trying to tell this story in a series of moments, and, and of course, it was, in fact, not one moment, but a bunch of things that really contributed to Baerbock's fall. But we have tried to summarize that in one clip, which is where she's doing a TV speech, I think, an address, which is meant to be kind of smooth, polished, professional political performance, doesn't quite go according to plan. And she makes that clear in an utterance, which I don't think we need to translate. So the CDU-CSU have the advantage once again, but then perhaps comes the defining moment of this whole campaign. And this is the kind of thing that even the most professionally managed campaign can't plan. It's an event, if you like, from the heavens. They watch as if in fear things could get worse in Germany. And the rising waters where the Rhine and Mosul rivers meet in Koblenz offer no reassurance. Dozens have lost their lives to flooding in this region, and there's little confidence the struggle for residents is over yet. The catastrophic floods that hit Western Germany, these turn out to have a huge impact on the election campaign. And the key moment here is really when Armin Laschet, who is the state premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, the state that's hit hardest by the floods. So someone who is expected to really lead his state through the crisis to act kind of as the father of the state. And he begins to try to take on that role. But then comes a moment where the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, is in the flood zone with Armin Laschet in the background. And Frank-Walter Steinmeier is giving a very somber speech. Und diese Hilfe, die zugesagt ist, soll auch gelten für die Gemeinden. Talking about the loss of life and the destruction, the devastation that has been inflicted on this community. And you can see Armin Laschet in the background. Matt, do you want to describe the scene and the kind of contrast that comes to light there? Well, as you say, Steinmeier was there making this, you know, very kind of heartfelt speech and... At the same time, apparently there was a reporter lying on his stomach because there weren't any tables there for the press to work on. And the people in the background, including Laschet, were pointing to this and making fun of this situation and, you know, having kind of a light moment. Laschet says that he could not hear what Steinmeier was saying, and he and his staff there were just making fun of this reporter, but still the picture made it look like he was cracking jokes in the background in this very trying time in this flood hit town. And the the pictures really just were devastating for him. And that began, I think, this questioning of his ability really to lead the country. Was he 
the right person? Could he step in Merkel's shoes? And he never really managed to turn things around after that, I would say. Yeah, Cornelius, I remember looking in your poll of polls and rarely is a kind of event so directly kind of correlated with changes in the polls. I think at one point we had a chart that had the line where the floods take place and then you can just see the CDU, CSU start to fall, right? As you as you mentioned, yes, the, the poll of polls really plummeted for the CDU, CSU. They fell from around 29%, which they had recovered to, to 21%. But also, um, Armin Laschet's like personal approval ratings, his ratings in the question who Germans would prefer to have as a chancellor or who they would vote for directly if they could elect the chancellor directly in all those indicators, we see Armin Laschet's figure decreased dramatically and they haven't recovered since. And so, I, yeah, from that point, all those indicators really suggest that he became a more liability for the party. I would just add that I don't think it was just the pictures of him laughing that really hurt him in the end. It was what was happening on the ground. And, you know, there was this sense that the aid wasn't coming fast enough, that he'd been out on the campaign trail. He wasn't focused enough on what was happening in his home state there and real frustration. And this was on the nightly news every night, you know, with locals in these towns that had been destroyed by these floods complaining about the fact that, you know, they didn't have clean water, they didn't have the supplies they needed and and so on. So I think it started with the pictures of him laughing, but then it just got worse because of the response on the ground. Emily, why do you think that the Greens were not able to take advantage or didn't get a big bounce as a result of the floods? Obviously, climate change then came to the forefront of the discussion. There was a lot of talk about how maybe you couldn't attribute these particular floods to climate change. But there was a consensus that these events happen more often as a result of climate change. So in a sense, this is the Greens' core issue but they don't really rise in the polls as a result. Do you or do the Greens themselves have any explanation for that? I mean, the folks that I've been talking to in the weeks and now, I guess, months since then don't really have a great answer. I mean, I think the conversations at the time, obviously being very sensitive and careful to the pain and suffering on the ground, were essentially that this is a moment that shows Germans in their own homes and in their own country the real impact that climate change is going to have, whereas before it felt like something or you could argue that it's something that felt further away. And I mean, I think Again, it comes back to this question of Baerbock as a credible leader of the country. And so this idea that particularly following a leader like Angela Merkel, who is known as a crisis manager, who is the stable, steady, been here forever hand in these moments of crisis, the whole situation made it clear to voters that climate change is real and important and an issue that needs to be paid attention to, which I think is part of why you are very likely to see the Greens in the next government. But I don't know that it made it clear to them that Annalena Baerbock herself was the person who was most prepared to lead them through that.
Guten Abend, liebe Zuschauer, herzlich willkommen zum Dreikampf der Spitzenkandidaten bei ARD und We're trying to tell the story of this campaign in a series of moments and what I find extraordinary is if we kind of fast forward to today to a few days out from election day itself. We've been through three debates with the candidates. Guten Abend Annalena Baerbock, guten Abend Armin Laschet und einen guten Abend Olaf Scholz. Where I would not say there's a particular key moment there been exchanges that have perhaps stood out, but nothing that really seems to have moved the needle hugely. And I guess my point is, there is no Olaf Scholz moment here. There are a bunch of moments where basically others mess up in some way or other, and Olaf Scholz is left standing. Cornelius, just talk us through, you know, the progress of the SPD, how they go from being third in the polls to being first. When do they start to move up? When does that happen and can we attribute it to anything in particular? Um, yeah, so that started also during the time after the flood. So SPD has started to increase in mid-July and rose to 25, 26% in the poll of polls right now in September over the summer. And uh, yeah, they overtook the CDU, CDU for the first time um, since 2005 in mid-August. Um, but as you say, there hasn't been right this big Olaf Scholz moment and still we see the SPD in poll position in the final week of the German election. Yeah, and we see Scholz having presented himself very much in a kind of statesman-like manner, almost kind of above the fray in these debates for the most part. Matt, perhaps another thing that's striking is the SPD is not uh, always known for internal party discipline and unity, but does seem to have run a very professional campaign where the two official party leaders have remained very much in the background and allowed Olaf Scholz to be, you know, the face of the party of the campaign. But what do you put it down to, the fact that the SPD, who we really would not have imagined even a few months ago, could be in first place at this point? How have they managed to do it? The mistakes of the competition have really you know, led us to this point. I'm not sure that if uh, Laschet hadn't stumbled the way that he did, that Schultz would have managed to win. I think the other big advantage Schultz has had, though, is, you know, his experience during the pandemic and the credit people give him as finance minister for helping steer Germany through this crisis. And a lot of regular Germans have benefited as a result from the financial aid that came their way. And people remember that and they look to him and say, well, he actually did a pretty good job there. You know, he helped us out and he's somebody whom we can trust in a time of crisis, whereas you look at the other two and you've got Bear Book, he doesn't really have any experience to speak of, and you've got Laschet, who just seems to kind of stumble his way through life, you know, it's, it's not the kind of thing that gives people a lot of confidence. So I, I don't think that Schultz is the type of politician that people get really excited about. But he is somebody people say, you know, he's not going to screw things up. So he's the safe choice given a slate of candidates, none of whom are particularly popular, he seems like the least risky choice. And I think that is ultimately why he's the last man standing here, or it appears so now anyway. So we should just wrap things up. I think that does tell the story of the campaign so far. The next chapter will be what kind of government is formed right now. Cornelius, according to the polls, what would be your sense of what combination of parties is most likely to command a majority and to work together as, as the next government? 
we have seen now in the very final days of the election is a further tightening of the race. And the very latest poll of polls, the SPD stands at 25%, the CDU CSU at 22%, which is very well within the margin of error. And we could end up very well as well with CDU on top. So that's um, just as a note of caution as well. But what's also new in uncharted territory for Germany is that we have six mathematically possible coalition options. And while none of them is really favored by the German public, it seems, as all of them have a net negative approval rating, all of those uh, coalition options, we do see that the traffic light coalition option of the SPD, the Greens and the FDP, so this red, yellow, green, would be able to form a government. And this would be the most favored of the, all of those unfavored coalition options. Mm. That's all to play for. As you say, yeah. it's a close race. We don't know how this is going to turn out. Matt, I'll give the last word to you. How would you sum up the campaign and how would you predict the days ahead following the election? Well, I think all these campaigns in Germany have a similar arc where there's a lot of kind of froth at the beginning early on. There are, you know, fantasies out there about who could end up winning, most of which then uh, turn out to be dashed by the hard reality that most German voters are a bit older and tend to go for the safe choice, as Emily pointed out in a, in a piece. So if you have an older electorate, they're going to stick with what they know. And what they know in most cases is the CDU and the SPD. So I think after 16 years of uh, CDU rule under Merkel, it's probably not that surprising and maybe not such a bad thing that voters might be looking for a bit of change, but not too much change because they're German. <laughs> right. And we'll see how much change they get after the election. Um, Cornelius, Emily, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Now, as you would expect, Politico will be all over the German election, particularly on election night as the results come in. The place to be is our homepage. We'll be live blogging from about 4pm on Sunday, late into the evening, politico.eu for that. And then, particularly for podcast listeners, something special, something new, a live Twitter audio chat with our German election team. We'll do that at 10pm Central European time. The main thing to do is make sure you're following the Political Europe Twitter account. And if you are, you'll be able to listen in as we discuss the election result, the implications, what comes next, the analysis, all of that in a special audio chat broadcast on Twitter at 10pm Central European time. And that conversation will form the basis of a special edition of EU Confidential, which we'll put together late on Sunday night. And that will be with you in your feed early on Monday morning. So if you're not already a subscriber to EU Confidential, now is the time to subscribe or follow so that that episode is waiting for you when you wake up on Monday. Now, coming up in the second part of this podcast, we'll bring you up to speed on the other big drama of the week, the sub-snub heard around the world. Stay with us. A message from SQM. SQM is a global company that has been producing lithium for over 20 years. 
According to Pablo Altamirez, SQM's Senior Vice President of Sales, lithium and iodine in 2021 alone, lithium demand is projected to soar by 40%. In the next 10 to 15 years, Altamira says, it will grow by at least between 20 and 25% each year. The main challenge is keeping up with the demand while ensuring the lithium produced is sustainable at every stage of the production process. For SQM, this is non-negotiable. The company has committed to being fully carbon neutral by 2030. Now SQM wants to share its knowledge and experience with the rest of the world. Read the full interview on Politico. I uh, am honored today to be joined by two of America's closest allies, Australia and the United Kingdom, to launch a new phase of the trilateral security cooperation among our countries. As Prime Minister Morrison and Prime Minister Johnson said, I want to thank you for this partnership, your vision as we embark together on this strategic mission. Although Australia, the UK and US partnership, AUKUS, it sounds strange and all these acronyms, but it's, it's a good one. AUKUS, our nations will update and enhance our shared ability to take on the threats of the 21st century, just as we did in the 20th century, together. Now, to say AUKUS has caused a ruckus would be a major understatement. It's a big, big deal. Even if Joe Biden can't remember the name of the Australian Prime Minister. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr Prime Minister. That's Scott Morrison, Mr President. He struck the deal with. AUKUS is that new strategic pact secretly negotiated between Australia, the UK and the US, which means the scrapping of a huge contract Australia gave to France to build a dozen submarines. The unspoken context here is, of course, China. Australia has concluded that a pact with the US in particular is a better security bet than a deal with France. But France has reacted with fury. Its foreign minister has called the deal a stab in the back. And President Emmanuel Macron took the unprecedented step of recalling his ambassadors to the US and Australia for consultations. He's since announced that the French ambassador to the US will return to Washington next week. And Joe Biden has now promised Macron a meeting in Europe at the end of October and made various other conciliatory noises in a joint statement with the French president. But France has made very clear that it regards this as much more than a bilateral matter. It says Europe as a whole has been double-crossed by the AUKUS trio. It argues that raises huge questions about the future of the transatlantic alliance and it wants to see serious consequences. At least some European leaders agree, but some aren't so sure. So let's try to unpack all of this now with a truly global panel. It's after midnight here in Berlin, but joining us from the morning in Sydney is Politico's Zoya Sheftalovich. Hi, Zoya. Good morning, or should I say good night? <laughs> yeah, it's all getting very confusing. And uh, where it's early evening, live from New York, where they're covering the UN General Assembly, senior Paris correspondent Reem Montaz. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And Chief Brussels Correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. So, Zoya, let's start with you. Great to have you on the podcast. Why did Australia take this extraordinary step? So I would say there are probably two reasons for it. One is that the submarine deal has been doing pretty poorly 
on the Australian level. And the other is that this sort of partnership with the UK and the US involves a really high degree of sharing of some pretty key technology in the face of a really aggressive China for Australia. So on the terms of the submarine deal, it's just been a disaster from the very beginning. There have been cost overruns. There have been cybersecurity hacks of the system of the company that was responsible for providing these submarines to Australia. There's been a huge dispute over the workforce that is being used to build the submarine. So one of the main reasons why the French company was chosen was because it promised to do so much of the work in Australia using Australian talent. But as the years have gone by, fewer and fewer Australians were involved in the project. And there was this sense that the Australian industry was not sufficiently up to the task. So there's just been repeated problems with the actual project itself. And what the UK and US were offering were better submarines from the perspective of they were nuclear powered, they don't need to be refueled, so they can just go and go. And from the perspective of all of this additional technology and all of this additional military capability that's being shared as well, which was something that France was not putting on the table. And Reem, why is this such a big deal from France? I outlined briefly the steps that France has already taken, and it clearly doesn't want things to stop there. Why has this provoked such fury from the French side? So there's about three reasons why France is so pissed off right now. And let's say they're truly in a rage. I've never heard French officials so explicitly, publicly pissed off, especially toward an ally and a friend like the US. To start with, they feel, French officials feel like Australian officials lied to their face multiple times, most recently when two weeks before Australia, the US and the UK announced this new trilateral security partnership, the Australian foreign and defense ministers met with their counterparts, their French counterparts, and reaffirmed their engagement to buy these French submarines. And French officials say that they asked their counterparts multiple times since June whether they wanted to pivot to nuclear-propelled submarines. And their Australian counterparts basically avoided answering the question. So that's one. They feel like they were lied to deliberately by a strategic partner. Secondly, they feel like they were betrayed, and I'm quoting here, by the U.S., and the UK to a lesser extent. They feel like they were betrayed by the US because they feel like the US shouldn't have gone behind their back to kick them out of their own strategic partnership with a very important country in the Indo-Pacific, which is a region of the world where France has been beefing up its presence. And they feel like the US has bigfooted them out of that space. And finally, this has been a particularly bitter pill for France to swallow because they are now coming face to face with the limits of their own power and their own pull. France talks up a big game about having strategic autonomy, about being a country with nuclear power, able to do things on their own. And here, through this brutal partnership, the U.S. is basically telling France, listen, when countries are given the choice between the American security guarantee and a French partnership, they are going to choose the American security guarantee, despite the fact that, well, the U.S. hasn't really done very well in Afghanistan and that the world has just survived four years of the Trump administration. And that is something that the French are having a very hard time accepting. 
Right, and David France has made clear this is not just about France as far as it's concerned, but about bilateral relations between France and Australia, between France and the US. They think this is a European issue. They want European consequences. Does Europe, to use that word broadly, see it the same way? Well, of course, it's how we define Europe, right? But in terms of the EU's top leaders, they've come out very much behind France, making a point that this is about alliances. The council president, Charles Michel, saying there are two things about alliances. There needs to be transparency and reliability, essentially. And he is just not seeing either of those. There just isn't that kind of uh, solidarity, however you want to call it. Now, we know that Some ministers, there was a meeting of EU foreign ministers here in New York, were less interested in discussing this topic, suggesting that some of them feel they're getting drawn into a fight that isn't really theirs. Now, of course, France, more than most of the others, perhaps more than any of the other 26 EU countries, feels entitled to consultations with the US about major security issues. It's a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. These are all factors that explain why Paris might see things slightly differently than Brussels or the rest of Europe. But overall, there is quite a bit of concern about how the U.S. treated France in this. And interesting to me is that some of the countries that just a few months ago were insisting that, oh, yes, the U.S. had consulted with NATO allies, for instance, about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, now are saying, aha, They didn't really talk to us about Afghanistan. They just announced their withdrawal. They just expected us to go along. And now Biden, who promised that everything would be better, that he was rejuvenating alliances, but in fact hasn't consulted with them. So putting that in this sort of spectrum of unreliability by the U.S. Mm. So Zoya, given all this noise, given the huge furor that's been kicked off by this decision, what's been the reaction in Australia? Is anyone questioning whether the government did the right thing here? Pretty much not. So at the moment, the reaction is bipartisan support for this new deal. There has been some criticism from some corners of how the news was delivered. Certainly, I don't think anyone could argue that it's a good idea to surprise your allies with a a. 7am press conference. But from the perspective of the actual deal itself, there has been almost no opposition from the mainstream political parties or from most corners. And that really is a sign of a huge shift in Australian thinking that's happened over a reasonably, a pretty short time frame, really. I mean, thinking back to 2012, Australia was pivoting toward what it called the Asian century. It was opening trade routes. It was wanting to really cooperate with Asia much more in China in particular. You fast forward to 2014 and Xi Jinping is delivering a joint address to the Australian parliament, a rare honour that's usually bestowed only on American presidents. Fast forward just a few years after that, and we're arming ourselves with nuclear submarines with the threat of China looming on our doorstep. And that's really been a huge shift. Nuclear technology at the time that Australia signed this French deal in 2016 was considered essentially unpalatable. One of the reasons was the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan that had really hit close to home. And another reason was this nuclear non-proliferation that Australian political parties, particularly the opposition, were really supportive of. 
But in the face of really extreme Chinese aggression, particularly in the South China Sea, but also with cybersecurity hacks of the Australian Parliament, with huge trade wars that are launched at a moment's notice, this has really galvanised the Australian public and the Australian government against China. And a deal that seemed okay in 2016 for you know 12 submarines that were going to be diesel powered and you know quiet and good, now when looked at from the perspective of what Australia is facing from the threat in this region, the pivot to to these US nuclear subs has been pretty unanimously welcomed. The way the Australians have seen it is, you know, this did not appear like some big geostrategic partnership, the French deal. It seemed like it was buying some French tech. So there has been a degree of surprise in Australia at the vitriol coming from Paris, but it is definitely bipartisan support for the move. Andrew, I think one thing we need to be doing right now as journalists is asking Biden and his administration, what is the plan? If we can think of all the questions that we didn't really ask sharply enough about Afghanistan 20 years ago, what are they actually trying to achieve with China? What is the reason for these submarines? What is the purpose of this strategic alliance? What does the UK think it's going to do from, you know, global Britain on the other side of the world? What is the aim? And they saw that 20 years in Afghanistan couldn't change the fundamental nature of that country. So what are they trying to do with China? To get China to play by world trade rules, to protect the Uyghurs? What's the goal? My sense is they wanted to change the channel very quickly from this debacle of a withdrawal from Afghanistan, even though Biden seems to genuinely believe he did the right thing by getting the U.S. out of this 20-year war. But it was a mess. And in a rush to sort of change the channel there, he went into another mess, not realizing at all, totally oblivious to the fact that he was going to set Macron off, France being, you know, the oldest American ally. They like to boast about that and just left them out in the cold. Yeah. Well, this one is going to run and run. Um, we'll leave it there for now and let everyone get on with their, their various days, wherever they may be in them. It was great to uh, join up with uh, all of you and see you on the Zoom screen as well. Uh, David, Reem, Zoya, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And that's all the time we have on this special episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast if you don't do that already so you never miss an episode. And remember, we'll be bringing you a special extra episode which will drop into your feed early Monday with our initial take on the results of the German election. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Berlin. Thanks this week to Lucas Kotkamp and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And to you, a special vielen Dank für Ihre Aufmerksamkeit. <laughs>